We will read that psalm now, Psalm 116. And then we will read the Catechism Answers together on page 875 in the back of the red hymnal. Catechism lesson is the Eighth Commandment tonight. So we'll be using various scripture passages and won't be walking through this psalm, but we will give some special attention to it more towards the end of our consideration uh, tonight. Psalm 116, a beautiful psalm that really uh, sets the before us the, the heart of someone who is on the way to finding satisfaction in God. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later. Satisfaction and joy in God because of what He has done and how that then reflects in our life uh, a lack of coveting and contentment with what He has given to us. So give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death. My eyes from tears. My feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Question 73, page 875. 73 through 75 are the three questions for our lesson tonight. Let's read the answers together with one voice. Beloved, which is the eighth commandment? The eighth commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. What is required in the eighth commandment? The eighth commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth 
and outward estate of ourselves and others. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward state. I was in a car ride this week with a man that I I consider something of a a spiritual father. And uh, when I'm with him, I just try to soak up as much uh, spiritual insight and and wisdom as I can. So we're talking about various things, ministry or experience. And we just kind of began to talk about things as they are now, sort of out in in the world and, and what. The, the take is on all of that as, as a minister, as a Christian, as a man seeking to know and understand God and his word. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I, I think the Lord is allowing our society, our culture to, to go insane. I think it's the punishment of God. And there, there are many striking examples of, of where this seems to be true. You know, on the one hand, you, you see day go uh, one after the other. And things seem to hold together, and you're always thankful for that. Uh, but there are, is another sense, on, on the other hand, in which you see all of these evidences of what we feel like are the, the pillars of uh, the life that we know. Society and culture seem to oftentimes uh, be crumbling. And I, I was pointed to a story uh, this week on Al Mohler's daily podcast, his news podcast, he was talking about uh, this article that was documenting people in the West that are, quote, losing their taste for work, losing their taste for work. Reasons for this are many. Uh, this was a, an article in The Economist, but perhaps chief among them is that uh, governments and states ha- have provided disincentives for people to work. Uh, promising kind of ever-increasing benefits for, for those who, who are not working. And what does it mean that people have lost their taste for work as, as kind of a, a societal issue? Moeller uh, put it this way, according to the scriptures, that means we have lost our taste for being human beings made in the image of God. And that's because we, we are made to work. We were made to see value in what we do, we were made to understand that, that we are to be engaged in, in a lawful calling, that the Lord blesses us by allowing us to be compensated in light of what we do. But when a society is drifting from God's law, from righteousness, from these guideposts of morality, then uh, things begin to, to come apart. People have less reason to, to see these kinds of problems in losing their taste for work. People oftentimes can, can live life almost in a fog, detached from these rhythms that keep us grounded. Uh, daily work and rest and hopefully a weekly Sabbath as well. Uh, to live in this way where, where you have no taste for work, for instance, 
requires really an absence of, of virtue, a kind of virtue that Scripture puts before us, that, that is good for us to, to lean into. Uh, hard work, diligence, these kinds of things that we see put before us oftentimes in the Proverbs. There's also a presence of vice, greed, and entitlement. You look around society, I believe that a, a large-scale problem is that we live in a very greedy and entitled society, a, a selfish society in many ways. In other ways, maybe not so much, but in many ways, selfish. Hard work is, is not prized in many ways in our society as well. So we have greed, there is laziness, there is selfishness, and there's an absence of many of these things that provide the natural rhythms of what it means to be a human being. We are society also shot through with marketing and, and commercialism. And so we have this, this ever-increasing appetite to get more, to have more, to, to, to ascend in terms of wealth and possessions. But the morality, that the virtue that undergirds those things is oftentimes uh, crumbling. But what we need, of course, is God's wisdom. What we need is to be built up in his truth to be a peculiar people situated in this world who are not marked by the greed that we so often see and yet at the same time are are marked with an energy a vitality in our calling in what we do day by day because we understand that it's it's not simply uh, and not merely by any means just in order to increase our portion, to increase our wealth, but it rather is a way that we serve the Lord. And when we have that perspective, then there is a a meaning and a purpose that undergirds it in, in a much deeper way. So let's consider these things together. As I said, Psalm 116 isn't going to be something that we walk through. We'll give attention to it more later on. Let's let's survey various scriptures as we think about the Eighth Commandment together. The first biblical principle I want to highlight for us is, is that everyone is given a portion. That's the way that, that uh, older theologians talked about it. Everyone has their portion in this life. So God teaches us in his word that everything belongs to him. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Everything, because God has made it, because he created it, because he created it for himself, everything belongs to him. The the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yet as we sang at the beginning of our service tonight from Psalm 115, verse 16 there, says, The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So God in his wisdom and his goodness has purposed that he would give to each person a portion of blessing. And each person's portion in this life as we continue to survey scripture is going to vary. Matthew Matthew chapter 26 verse 11 says this, For you will always have the poor with you. Deuteronomy 15, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. 
First John chapter 3 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All three of those verses highlight something that's very important to see from Scripture. That God has not purposed that each person, person would have the same exact amount of goods and wealth. It will vary. This means that God has ordained that individuals and families own property. Private property is a a biblical principle and very important to, to understand. God set up various laws in Old Testament Israel and he gives general laws as well in his scripture in the scriptures that uphold this very idea. So Exodus chapter 22 highlights many of these things. What what would you do if someone's property was damaged by someone else? Well, they would have to repair or they would have to replace. The world is supposed to to operate this uh, this way. Today, in today's world, there's an obsession with equality of outcome. Oftentimes, we hear that kind of language. And that is not the way that God has purposed this world to be. So it also is safe to say then that uh, taking our cue from scripture that any political system which takes property ownership out of the hands of individuals and families is inherently wrong and sinful. So the political system of communism, for instance, which centralizes property ownership in the state is inherently morally wrong and decadent. Taking our cue then from all of these things in Scripture that God has given a portion and assigned a portion to each person, it's going to vary person to person, and yet private property is something that is biblical. What we see basically is that the main application of these truths is that if we believe all of these things are so, and if we believe that these things come from the mind and the wisdom and the purpose of God, then we, as his people, ought to be satisfied with our portion. This does not mean, of course, that we cannot seek to improve our station in life. And indeed, if we survey the scriptures, this is exactly the kind of thing we are encouraged to do. So Proverbs chapter 10 says this, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So there's a difference between finding a basic satisfaction with what we have been given and uh, between and, and having hard work attend that and saying, well, I'm never going to improve anything in life. This is what God has given me, and so I might as well just accept it. That is not the biblical way of living. We are rather to not allow ourselves to dishonor God in our hearts or our actions by showing dissatisfaction with what he has given to us. So Proverbs chapter 30, a wonderful prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Also, we think of the shorter catechism's uh, answer on the fourth petition in the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray for in the fourth petition? In the fourth petition, which is, give us this day our daily bread, we pray that of God's free gift we may receive a competent portion of the good things in this life and enjoy his blessing with them. It is, in a sense, understanding 
our relation to God in light of these things. Who is the one who is sovereign over all wealth, over all riches? It is the Lord. And if you are trusting him, if you are seeking to serve him and to honor him, if you are seeking to be obedient to his word, then what should attend that is a basic satisfaction and contentment with what God has granted to you. There may be other circumstances that would throw a wrench in all of those things. If you aren't trusting the Lord, if you aren't trying to sincerely serve and serve him and work diligently each day. But if you have a basic biblical approach to things, there ought to be a basic satisfaction with what God has given to you. When we don't have those things, when we shake our fist at God for what we have or what we don't have, it really is reflective of the fall all the way back in Genesis 3 and really is reflective of the angelic fall as well. What was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden? What was the devil's issue when he rebelled against God? They both were dissatisfied with where they were. The serpent devil tempted Adam and Eve saying oh God basically God just he doesn't want you to become like him he doesn't want you to to grow in your experience and what you have they fell prey to that temptation of course the devil himself wanted to become like God was dissatisfied with his place in life and so you see the way that unbelief and rebellion is woven through with this idea of being dissatisfied with what God has given to us. So the Eighth Commandment then, basically, what it says is unlawful for us to do is to break out of that basic satisfaction and to, by breaking God's law, by breaking His commandments, to unlawfully try to increase what you have, to take shortcuts, to break rules, to uh, deal falsely with others. Of course, the ways that you can do this, you could steal. (laughs) You could just take something that is not yours. And that, of course, is kind of the outward and basic breaking of the Eighth Commandment. But there are many different ways that we can break it within those bounds. We might be tempted to steal from God, for instance. One of the most basic ways that we would do that is to use the Sabbath to enrich yourself. And many people see it as just yet another day to pursue riches, to pursue wealth, to pursue uh, worldly goods and pleasures. And what is that doing? It's stealing from God. God has said, I will give you six days in order to pursue all of those things. In those six days, it's not as if you don't serve the Lord. You do. But God has given you that time to go about your vocation and your calling. One day, he commands for us to set aside, to give it to him. And why does he command that? Is it just because he wants his, well, yes, he wants to glorify himself. But he gives it to us for our good, that we might receive the blessing that we need. So many people might steal from God. Many people may, in in underhanded ways, uh, steal from their employer by lying in various ways. Yes, I did this, I did that. Yes, I was working at this time. Perhaps being on the clock and 
really not working might be another way that you might do that. Stealing from others. Uh, The scriptures also talk quite a bit about being fraudulent in the way that you deal with others. Proverbs 11 says this, "A, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. The false balance or the false weight used to be a much bigger problem in the marketplace. And people could sort of rig those things so that the, the product that they were selling, they would always have to give less of it. People thought they were receiving Uh, whatever but actually it was a lie now we can take it to mean different kinds of of false representation in business so you falsely report what you have earned or what you have made what I just uh, previously mentioned not working when you're on the clock to work anything where you misrepresent what you do in order to be paid more or in order to receive more that is fraudulent dealing. Another way that people break the eighth commandment is in seeking to to get rich quick, various get rich quick schemes. We seek to enrich ourselves by something that unjustly exploits others and gives large sums of money that are not through, you know, family inheritance or something. Things that aren't connected to work, these things are dangerous. They are unjust people say well what is it what's the problem with the lottery if the if a lottery ticket costs one two five dollars i really don't know whatever it costs to buy a lottery ticket what's really wrong with that it's not much money the problem is not what the ticket costs the problem is what happens if you win if you win your life is over your life is ruined if you win the lottery because it is nothing but a curse for the people who win When we seek all of these things, whether it be stealing, being fraudulent, misrepresenting what we have earned, what we have made in order to have more, when we lust after having more, there are various heart conditions that are driving those things. The first is unbelief. When we are dissatisfied with what God has granted to us, we are plagued with unbelief because we have a distrust of God's providence. Thomas Watson says this, uh, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Yes, he can, Psalm 78. Can God spread a table for me? The unbeliever says, no, he cannot. Therefore, he is resolved that he will spread a table for himself, but it shall be at other men's cost, and both first and second course shall be served in with stolen goods. It's a basic unbelief that God will provide for you. When you take shortcuts, when you're fraudulent, when you misrepresent, it's caused by unbelief. Of course, greed and covetousness, we've, we've mentioned those already tonight. Those are also engines for these kinds of commandment breaking. The Greek word for covetousness signifies an immoderate desire of getting, which is the roots of theft. A man covets more than his own, and this itch of covetousness makes him scratch what he can from another. Unbelief, greed, sloth, squandering. When we are lazy, we tend to to have this anxious feeling that we, we need to get more, and we are tempted then to take shortcuts. When we spend money unwisely, we feel we need to get more, and so then we 
have to take shortcuts there as well. God calls us to a a different kind of living, a different kind of life. And so let's focus on some of those things the rest of our time tonight. The first is this. God calls his people to be sober and moderate in the way that they approach their lives. So Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't it fascinating that there Paul speaks of salvation in Christ? He says, the grace of God has appeared and Christ has come. And what has Christ brought for us? Christ has brought forgiveness of sins and justification and the blessings, the heavenly blessings of God that come to us. And Paul says that this is what teaches you To live sober, moderate, self-controlled, and upright lives in this present age. In other words, the salvation that you have in Christ completely changes the way that you view this age and the age to come. All of a sudden, because your inheritance is in the age to come, because heaven is what you have been granted, because heaven is where your citizenship lies, Philippians chapter 3. Because all of those things, all of a sudden, the way that you approach this age is fundamentally different. You need not give in to worldly and passionate lusts and cravings. It is salvation in Christ which most of all teaches you to be sober-minded, to be moderate. Why? Because your gaze is fixed on the age to come. Because God has given you a taste for heaven and for eternity. And when your taste is for heaven, when your taste is for eternity, the delicacies of this world are not the same anymore. So that is the the, the fundamental disposition of God's people. We are to be sober in the way that we approach this world. And if we are sober and moderate, then how will that change the way that we approach something like the Eighth Commandment? It changes it drastically. Eighth Commandment breaking is almost always fueled and driven by An immoderate approach to the things of this world. You need more. See how the 8th commandment and the 10th commandment are often linked in very close ways. Coveting and stealing. So if our love for Christ and if our understanding of salvation is growing and increasing, what will we see? We will see an attendant growth of our sober-mindedness and moderation of the things of this world. God has also called us in Christ to be generous. It's the second virtue. Four virtues we'll talk about tonight. Generous. 
Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All of a sudden, as our gaze is heavenward, and as Christ has refashioned the way that we approach all of these things, all of a sudden now, our hearts are filled with generosity, particularly to show forth the kind of love, the kind of benevolence, the kind of graciousness and generosity that God has shown to us. As Paul is in 2 Corinthians making this grand appeal to the believers there to share what they have for other Christians who are in need, he puts, it at, he puts at the center of it the gospel. He who was rich became poor so that those who were poor might become rich. God has shared with you. So you ought to share with others. When our gaze is heavenward, when our love for Christ is increasing, we will see an attendant increasing of our generosity. Next virtue that we will see is contentment. We talk a lot about contentment in Christ and uh, that is certainly a virtue that can help us in these ways. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When we understand in Christ that what God has given to us and how the gospel helps us to know that God is not leaving. If you understand the grace of God, if you understand your standing in Christ and that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus and that he who loves you looks upon you as worth more than many sparrows, And you see how he clothes the lilies of the field. And how much does he care for you? We are then content with what we have because we say, it is the Lord who is my helper. And oftentimes contentment is bred out of a deep sense of submission in our hearts because we say, you know what? Perhaps God is wiser than I am about what I should actually have in this world. Perhaps God knows more than I do the portion that I need so that I might serve him. So what I need to do is ask for grace so that I might find contentment in Christ and with what God has given to me so that I might serve him because that is what the Lord wants me to do anyways. He's wiser than I am. I may have all of these ideas about what he should give me or what he should have given me by now. But in his providence, perhaps he has not. So we are to keep our life free from the love of money and be content with what we have. Why? Because God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And then 
No matter what station in life we find ourselves in, we can then confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. The sober moderation towards all things that is rooted in the gospel, a generosity that flows out of understanding God's generosity towards us, contentment that is uh, along, along with it comes a, a, a deep submission to what God is doing and the wisdom that he has. And then finally, satisfaction. Do you have joy and satisfaction in God? And if you do, then this commandment starts to dwell in a whole new light, doesn't it? Because those whose deepest joy is God are not those who are desperately trying to gain more riches in this life. And deep satisfaction from God uh, is born out of a, a deep love for God. So Psalm 116, as we read tonight, I love the Lord. Why? Because he has heard my cries for mercy. My pleas for mercy. What does Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 say? Keep your life free from the what of money? From the love of money. Psalm 115. I love the Lord. The person who loves the God who has saved him is the person who does not have room in his heart to love the idol of money. I love the Lord. And where does that love for the Lord come from? It comes from knowing that he has saved you. It comes from seeing the depth of his mercy. It comes from seeing that he has acted for you right when you have called for his help. He inclined his ear to me. So what? I will call upon him as long as I live. It comes from seeing the desperate situation you were in when you were in your sin. And thus it gives shape to the rest of your life. Will you ever run to the idol of money or worldly possessions if you keep that truth at the center of your heart? No, I will call upon him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I was suffering in distress and anguish, but I called on the name of the Lord, and he heard me. And of course, it gives shape then to the rest of your life. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I, I will make his goodness known. That will be what is highest in my life. What he has done for me. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. This virtue of satisfaction, of finding joy in the Lord. When you're satisfied in him, then there won't be any room in your heart to be dissatisfied with what he 
has given you because you love him, because you trust him, and because you look upon him as wise and good and able to give you what you need as long as he would have you here to serve him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you and praise you. We ask that you would help us to take the words of your word, of your scriptures, hide them deep in our hearts, that our lives would show forth the fruit of what you have done in us. We thank you that you have heard our cries for mercy. May that make us satisfied, content in you. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.